name is Sean O'Malley. And I'm Dr. David Goldblum. Welcome back to the official podcast for the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Um, today uh, is World Suicide Prevention Day, uh, and that is the subject of our podcast. Uh, many of you are familiar with the numbers. Uh, it's approximately 4,000 Canadians uh, each year uh, die by suicide uh, worldwide. Uh, it's about 800,000. Uh, more than uh, homicides and all natural disasters uh, combined uh, as uh, one of the leading causes uh, of preventable death. Uh, so today we're, we're going to go into a, a range of issues. Uh, a, a year ago um, I published um, a series for CAMH uh, on the subject uh, of suicide and suicide prevention. Uh, it was, and we'll link to this uh, from the podcast. Uh, it was called 13 Reasons Why Not. Uh, it was an antidote to the, uh, the Netflix show about teen suicide called 13 Reasons Why. And I actually got that title, was inspired by a psychiatrist I was uh, speaking to who here who works with child and youth uh, when we were getting media requests to discuss the show. And, and her answer was 13 Reasons Why. Um, I'm devoting my career to the 13 Reasons Why Not. So, so that was sort of the inspiration for it. And, and in that series, um, there were 13 stories all told by CAMH staff, uh, myself included, um, who had experiences with either suicidal ideation or uh, as survivors uh, of losing uh, someone uh, they were close to, uh, to suicide. Uh, Dr. Goldblum also uh, participated uh, in that series um, in two ways. Uh, in one way, he just helped frame uh, the issues and, and, and give them context. Uh, and uh, he also told uh, his own personal story um, of the effect of losing uh, a longtime patient uh, of his uh, to suicide. So um, I'd like to get into those issues again, um, you know, big picture, uh, you know, as well as, uh, as specifically with, uh, with you, David. Uh, and uh, I'm also pleased to be joined um, by uh, another one of our fellow psychiatrists, uh, Dr. Uh, Javeria Zahir. Um, thank you for coming, uh, Javeria. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Javeria uh, published a study this year um, that was a very uh, a novel uh, approach to suicide and suicide prevention by uh, looking at uh, suicide notes and uh, looking for clues or, uh, or evidence or patterns um, that could ultimately uh, be used uh, and applied to, to suicide prevention uh, measures uh, in the future. Um, she also, I believe I have this right, you have worked on the front line as a emergency room psychiatrist uh, triaging and treating people uh, with suicidal ideation, is that correct? Absolutely, I've been in the CAMH Emerge for the last six years and we see people on their very worst days and try to get them connected to the services they deserve. Uh, so, Javeri, I'd, I'd like to ask you about your experience there on the front lines, uh, as well as get into um, you know your study a little bit more as well. Um, but before we get to that, I, I just want to uh, speak briefly um, from a personal perspective. Um, you know, all the numbers that I just threw out, uh, we know all too well that um, that these people are not statistics; um, that they're real people. Uh, and one of them was my brother-in-law, Eric. Um, he died by suicide a little over uh, a decade ago. And uh, he, um, I mean, I, I don't refer to myself as a survivor of suicide because I was actually not that close to him. Um, I don't think anyone really was in his last few years. But we had a lot in common. Uh, we were almost exactly the same age. Um, we had a mutual affection for his sister. 
um, and uh, we both uh, shared a certain taste in um, in southern uh, 1970s uh, rock and roll, um, particularly Leonard Skinnerd, um, and uh, the song Freebird was uh, was what he chose to uh, have play uh, at his funeral. When my partner told me that uh, that he had killed himself, um, my reaction was visceral. Um, it's something I'm ashamed of to this day. Um, basically, the first, literally the first two words out of my mouth, uh, one was a swear word, that one, and, um, and the other in its own way was even worse. Uh, I just, it came from somewhere in my lizard brain, I just blurted out, bleeping coward. And I'm not asking you, David, for absolution. Um, I've been making amends for that ever since, and in a roundabout way, that's part of what led me here to Camage. Um, but I was wondering if maybe you could put that reaction into some context. I mean, is that something you see as part of the continuum of, of grief and reaction to sudden loss of a loved one? Like, I was angry at him in that moment. I mean, is that a common reaction? I think it's an incredibly common reaction. and. You know, the the reaction to suicide is a complex one. It's not a simple one. It's not a single or linear emotion. It's a profound pain and anguish and often anger and confusion and judgment and all of those things rolled up together and experienced simultaneously. Uh, but the sense of how could you, how could you to me, to your family, to your network, uh, I think is in part an acknowledgement of the mystery of suicide for the people who are left behind, uh, as well as the guilt uh, for people who are left behind about what they might have missed, how they could have acted differently. So it really is a confluence of thoughts and emotions. Now, now the subject of this conversation is, is suicide prevention. Um, so I, I want to look at Eric's story through in a, in a few ways that, that, that lead to that. Um, and, and one of them has to do with, with the area of risk. Um, in a related note, a few, other, a few years after he passed, um, my, my daughter, uh, as a teenager, had her own um, crisis of ideation to the point where we called a helpline. And um, the, one of the very first things I ask is, uh, has anyone in your family or network um, died by suicide? And I mentioned my brother-in-law, and, and I said, you know, but he's not a blood, he's not a blood relative. Um, his sister was adopted. and. And my daughter didn't really know him at all. Um, and they said, it doesn't matter. Um, doesn't matter if it's a blood relative. Doesn't even matter how close you were. If there has been suicide in the family, uh, they said that that uh, was on its own um, a risk factor. So, Javeri, we hear, you know, words like, you know, contagion. And you hear about sometimes suicide clusters. You certainly hear it way too much in Aboriginal and Indigenous communities. Um, but is, does that just generally, and I even think of famous Canadians like George Chevalo, the boxer, who 
had a son die by suicide and then another son and then his wife died by suicide. I mean, does that in itself put someone at, at more potential risk if they have lost someone they know to suicide? I think suicide prevention is very complex for the reasons you name. On one hand, it's really important to destigmatize mental health um, address people's distress to be open about losing someone to suicide or having suicidal thoughts. On the other hand, there is a very real phenomenon of suicide contagion, meaning if people hear about suicide or experience suicide within their families or within their social circle, it can lead to um, death by suicide within that population group. And there's many hypotheses as to why. I think there are several ways we can um, improve prevention and 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 destigmatize without. Um, hazarding the risk for contagion and some of that is when we talk about suicide we always need to point out that the vast majority of people who suffer from mental health concerns and the vast majority of people who suffer from suicidal ideation do not die by suicide that there's hope that there are treatments that work that there are ways to pathways to resilient and threads of hope that we can hold on to uh, I think that the second piece that's really important uh, is that we present suicide as the tragedy that it is. It's a personal tragedy. It's a major public health concern. Uh, and we have to be careful not to romanticize uh, or to glamorize death by suicide. And we need to make sure that when we talk about suicide, we don't talk about particular triggers. Um, we talk about um, the tragedy and we talk about what could have happened, what, how, how we could have seen something otherwise. What are the ways we could prevent? What are the um, resources that, that are available? Now, thank you. Now, I'm a former journalist myself, and I remember in the aftermath of the uh, deaths uh, recently, the summer of uh, two well-known uh, Americans, in, including Anthony Bourdain, um, and there was a lot of discussion then about what coverage and discussion of suicide does. And I remember reading a study that that said that there actually is a risk, depending on how you talk about suicide that it could lead in the broader population to um, to an increase um, in, in suicide if you don't report it properly. And maybe we'll also send a link to, uh, there were, it was the Mental Health Commission of Canada actually had a list of guidelines for reporters. And so maybe we'll link to that too. Now, in terms of what we can actually do, what we should do, um, I mean, Javeria, I mean, you have to deal with that, you know, in the moment on the front lines at ER, you you have to make that decision to assess whether to admit someone or to give them some sort of plan and, and send them on their way. Um, I mean, I can't imagine how difficult it is to to have to do that. Um, you know, how, how do you deal with the inherent doubt that goes with, you know, not knowing for sure? Um, whether someone's going to be okay. I think this is, I think for a psychiatrist, losing someone to suicide is, is unimaginable, unimaginably painful. And I think the if only piece that David spoke about is something that goes through the minds of healthcare providers as well. I think for me in an emergency department setting, uh, there are two things that we need to think about. One is someone's risk status. So compared to everybody else in the population, what is that person's level of risk? And then we can talk about population-based risk factors, things like gender, a past history of suicidal behavior, a family history, 
the presence of uh, major depressive disorder or other psychiatric illnesses. And then we also need to think about their risk state. So compared to if we have someone named John who comes into the emergency department, compared to John's own risk, is today the worst he's ever felt? Does he feel the least safe he's ever felt today? Or has he felt less safe in the past? And knowing where someone is compared to themselves, as well as their risk relative to the population, I think both are very important in judging risk. I think, too, that psychiatry is a science. It's also an art. And suicide, while it well, we can know what predicts suicide on a population level, it's almost impossible to pick, predict death by suicide on an individual level just because it's such a rare outcome. But we have tools like safety planning that are evidence-based interventions to reduce someone's risk for suicide. We can use scales, whether they're scales to measure depressive symptoms or a set of questions we can ask about suicidal ideation to see where their risk is compared to, again, the general population and themselves. We can talk to family members and loved ones. We can look at their function. Are they going to work? Are they going to school? Are they using more substances? So we need to triangulate to look at all of the moving pieces and use that information in a rigorous way to come up with uh, not only a diagnosis or a prediction, but a plan, a safety plan. So I think we need to move past saying this person's at low, medium, or high risk for suicide and saying this is this person's risk in this moment and what are we going to do um, to create a treatment plan that will reduce that risk and allow them to recover and you know access their goals and dreams and improve their quality of life moving forward. Now, now David, your, your personal perspective in the 13 Reasons uh project that that we did was uh and it's something you you've you've written about in uh in your books as well but uh you you spoke about one of your longtime patients um who died by suicide um can you can you talk about you know how that um you know impacted you as as a clinician and as a person well first uh, it's easier to talk about how it impacted me as a person because this was a patient who i had known for many years and whose suicide caught me completely off guard and who, whose loss for me just shook me to my core. That's the only way I can describe it. And then that sort of professional side of you kicks in to do the kind of reflection and inquiry and review around what could I have done differently? What did I miss? And certainly it makes your antennae tingle more in the days and weeks that follow uh, in dealing with all patients. But the danger is that it uh, drives you into a kind of defensive medicine that would make it impossible to function certainly as an emergency room clinician like Javeria because you have to be able to live with a certain level of uncertainty, unknowability. We are a profession that has no lab tests to confirm or refute diagnoses or to measure degrees of risk. But you know, in that regard, we're not that different from emergency room docs dealing with someone with chest pain and not knowing whether that person is safe to send home or might have a heart attack three hours later versus keeping someone in the hospital and under close observation. The thing to remember is that suicidal ideation occurs 
uh, hundredfold more commonly than people uh, dying by suicide. And I would hate to imagine some world where anybody who experienced suicidal ideation suddenly found themselves detained in a hospital to try to minimize the risk as much as possible. That's not a world any of us would want to live in. And it would in fact stifle people from divulging the fact that they were struggling with suicidal ideation. And let's remember that for many people who struggle with suicidal thinking, it is an ambivalent experience. There's part of them that wants it and part of them that doesn't want it. And that's exactly what catapults them often into seeking help. Well, I mean, that's what I wanted to get into now when you referred to the concern about people being afraid to disclose. And and that's what, Javeria, one thing that, um, if I have it right, that, that you took out of, of your study um, on suicide notes, I mean, we got into a discussion of, you know, when you're looking for patterns of what, you know, you know people's, the way they talk about their condition, um, may make them potentially um, uh, at higher risk. And, and one of the takeaways that, that you said you, you got from that was, um, you know, the, the emphasis on, you know, not shying away from directly asking, you know, your patients if they are uh, having suicidal ideation. Like one thing I want to get across here is to for lack of a better word, normalize suicidal thinking. I mean, you said, David, that you believe that virtually all of your patients with depression have at least at some point had the thought of suicide cross their mind. Right. Um, that that was a perfectly normal experience um, to have. And you told me, Javeria, that there is no evidence that bringing up the subject of suicide with a patient um, or perhaps with a loved one, I'm not sure, um, that there is no evidence that that increases the risk that they will act on that. Do, do I have that correct? So certainly in a clinical setting, it's really important for clinicians to ask about suicide. Um, the majority of people, so in Ontario, for example, um, over two-thirds of people who have died by suicide sought mental health care in the five years prior to death. Um, people who are having suicidal thoughts who are depressed are often seeking care. And for that reason, it's important for clinicians to normalize suicidal thoughts, to frame suicidal thoughts in the context of depression. So when you're feeling really low or when you're feeling really down or you're feeling really anxious, do these dark thoughts kind of float into your mind? And I think if you can ask in a, uh, a straightforward and empathic way, people are often relieved to be able to disclose what they're thinking. Sometimes people are afraid of what you might do, as David said, are they going to lock me up or are they going to judge me or are they going to um, tell me that you know I'm being ridiculous? So to have that open space, I think, is really, really important. And to ask about, if you ask about suicide if as a clinician across time, then you'll know if something is changing. And, and if you don't ask when someone's doing well, then how will you know if something has changed in the intervening period? And, and can that, have you seen a sense of relief sometime in patients when the subject comes up and they see you and they see that you're not looking at them, you know, like, you know, they're in some kind of, that they're crazy in, in a way that they don't want to be seen? Like, has, Sean, has it been reassuring? This is one of the most loaded 
subjects for people to talk uh, about with other people. And when it comes to their family, they may feel uh, understandably a need to protect them from what they see as an ugly and horrible thought or a compulsion. And so that for them to be in the presence of a professional who both is at ease talking about it, is not judging them, and also has a level of familiarity that they display that lots of people experience these kinds of thoughts in this kind of state, makes people unburdened in a certain way to talk openly and without having to protect us as clinicians. Um, I guess in your study, in a way, you were almost backwards. Like you can't really start with the hypothesis. You know, you have to just not really know what it is you're going to find out until you start looking at it. How do you think you'll be able to apply uh, what you learned from the study of all those notes, um, you know, to your practice today? Uh, and so we had three major uh, themes come up in our work. The first was that many of the people described feeling a loss of control or powerlessness in the face of mental illness. So either the illness was overtaking them in some way and there was no way out, or if they did have control, they felt really badly about themselves or ashamed. So if I have control and things aren't getting better, what does that say about me? So themes of blame and pain. The second was sort of seeing their situation as a battle between the real self and mental illness. So when we talk about cancer or heart disease, we often talk about battling or fighting or conquering. Well, me mental illness is just as biological as these other phenomenon, but when you say I'm going to battle myself the way I see myself, my personality, and depression makes us feel really negatively about ourselves. It really takes a hit on our self-esteem, our, our value, our efficacy. So it becomes this really exhausting tug of war between who am I, who am I trying to defeat, am I trying to defeat myself? Um, and it's very painful for people. Um, it can be very also difficult um, to maintain hope in the face of mental health treatment. So mental health treatment, like all treatment, is, is sequential. Um, and you know we're not even talking about the people who weren't able to access care, which is another major issue. But um, in over half the suicide notes, the writers referred to previous mental health treatment expressing hopelessness or feeling that they were a disappointment or that there was something intrinsically wrong with them. And I think sometimes when we use a biologically-based model of mental illness and people aren't getting better, they say, well, maybe there's something intrinsically wrong with me that can't get better. And again, we know that there are good treatments for depression. We know that people do recover, but in the in that moment, it can be really difficult to overcome that distorted thinking. And I guess, I mean, the I mean, one line from you, David, that when I was doing the 13 Reasons series that I thought, to me, really framed the whole issue, like I kept on trying to explore the mystery of suicide. And, um, and you know, your take was basically, you know, at least 90% of people who die by suicide have an underlying mental illness. So there's really no big, ultimately no mystery to suicide prevention. Better treatment of for mental illness overall uh, is the best form of suicide prevention. Well, I think it's a form of suicide prevention. I mean, if you look at the research literature, which exists on suicide prevention, Probably the single most robust prevention is reducing access to means. So whether that is gun laws or suicide barriers, things like that, 
rest um, restriction of access to large quantities of insecticides in India had a significant impact. Changing the nature of gas stoves in the UK had a significant impact. But those are, in a sense, the downstream interventions. Those are the interventions that block a person for, who is highly suicidal from translating that desire, that impulse, that wish into action. The upstream interventions are about helping to reduce the risk of somebody reaching that state in a trajectory of illness or looking at other factors that put people at risk for suicide. We know, for instance, that unemployment is a risk factor for suicide, that the global financial crisis in 2008 was associated with a significant increase over the expected rate of suicide in the countries that were financially affected by it. So all of these, there's no one solution. We're always drawn towards unitary explanations and unitary solutions. And unfortunately, this is a far more complex issue. But I think what is really extraordinary about Javeria's study is the window that it has provided into an exquisite final moment for people. I remember as a medical student going to autopsies because it was part of our training to do so. And in the autopsy room, which was always a kind of white tiled room where the autopsies were performed, there was an inscription on the wall that I'll never forget. And it said, here in the presence of death, we humbly seek the secrets of life. And, you know, we are given an extraordinary privilege, all of us in healthcare, to know people uh, at their profoundest level of suffering and struggle. And sometimes it's the person sitting opposite you. Sometimes it's the encounter on a hospital ward. And for Juveria and her colleagues, it is in that final private moment where someone has chosen to commit to paper how they have arrived at this destination, how this is the only way out in that moment that they can see. And that's what we need to learn from, and that's why I think her study is so important. You keep saying most people who have these thoughts don't uh, act on them. Is it also maybe true that a lot of people who did may have changed their mind if they had had an opportunity or a second chance. I think one way of understanding this issue that really helped me um, over the years, I think we think about suicide as very binary. Either you want to do it or you don't. And as David mentioned, um, having suicidal ideation and living through it is the height of ambivalence, being pulled strongly in two different directions. So rather than thinking that people who have suicidal thoughts are just going to do it if they get to the point, if they cross a certain threshold. You think about people who are suffering, who have suicidal thoughts, who are 
on their minds all the time. It's like having a sunburn. And when you take a bath or you put your clothes on, you can feel it in that moment. Sometimes you don't feel it, sometimes you do. And so creating a society that is safe for people whose risk may be elevated in that moment, in that moment of distress, where they don't have access to things where they can impulsively end their lives, having a safe society, I think, is a really great public health intervention. Um, because when people are at that heightened level, anything can be really triggering. And so part of the work is to bring that level of risk down through treatment and support and having a safe and equitable society. And then the other piece is to keep them safe in that moment. Um, David, do you have any closing thoughts you want to express? No, I think uh, I think Javeria really summed it up very well uh, in terms of the complexity of the problem and the complexity of the solutions because we're all drawn to simple solutions and uh, I only wish that were uh, so for the vexing challenge of suicidal thinking and suicidal behavior but as Juveria said it's a significant public health problem and the only thing we can be certain about is that we have to do better well, thank you, David. Uh, thank you, Javeria. I mean, this uh, this is a hard conversation, um, but it's an important one. It's a necessary one, um, and we need to have it more than once a year. Um, but uh, thank you to the listeners uh, for sticking with us. And um, and if you if you go to our website, you will you will see links uh, to resources um, and uh, and and other uh, you know programs and facts and figures and and uh, ways to seek uh, help or get advice uh, for yourself or for a loved one. Um, my name is Sean O'Malley, and this has been uh, the KMH Podcast. Mm-hmm.